morning. Um, it feels wonderful to be here. I'm, as, as has already been shared, I am literally among family here with, um, with Pastora Sonia and the Johnson family singers. It's a joy just to be in the same, it's always a joy to be in the same room with these ladies and with Stephen, whom I miss today. Um, it feels good to be here. It also feels good that, hey, it's almost spring. Can anyone say glory to God? It's almost spring. Amen. You know, the longest, deepest, coldest winters eventually have to yield to spring. God, we know that. Forgive us if we forget that. We thank you, Jesus, that even amid great darkness, you promise great light. Even against the most horrific evil, you promise your grace. And so, this actually, this word actually began as an interesting thought experiment. We were going through Lion of Judah, greetings from Lion of Judah, your sister church. And um, I hadn't really, I'd gone through decades as a Christian without really coming across this particular person, really understanding this figure in Scripture. And um, as we were going through Second Chronicles, uh, I'll remember, you know, Bible in one year is really, really interesting to, li- cool to listen to, especially if you're like on the treadmill, talking about burning excess energy. Um, and I remember, you know, through the ear pods, hearing this story, and it sort of stood out on posts for me. And it, I, I almost heard the Holy Spirit say, hey, Sam, the marriage of the Lamb, the end of days, the great big church potluck in heaven, what if it isn't David, King David, or Elijah, or Peter, or Paul, that sits next to you at the table of the marriage of the Lamb? What if the placard reads Manasseh, as in King Manasseh, perhaps the worst king of Judah, perhaps the worst king of both Judah and, uh, and Israel, uh, just this homicidal one of the most despicable figures in Scripture. And he is the one who sits next to you and introduces himself. Of course, it's heaven, so the whole spite and pride thing will have been taken care of. (laughs) You're not going to ask the angel like a waiter, could you, you know, is there a seat down the row that I could sit? Just... You know, this company makes me uncomfortable. I have a confession to make. I know Manasseh. I think one of the reasons why this story 
has leapt in my consciousness is because I already have had dinner and breakfast with Manasseh. I've embraced him. I've befriended him. God is filling our church with Manasseh's. How does that happen? And as a, as a prelude here, you know, uh, the title that comes to my mind as I prepared this word is that this, this is a profile in grace. A profile in grace, and it is. But it could easily have been entitled a profile in evil. Because to understand grace... You have to risk understanding evil as the Lord sees it. So Dedham Church, this visiting pastor, is going to walk us through a harrowing journey for us to see a God's eye view of evil and a God's eye view of grace. Um... I've asked your incredibly patient um, AV team to help us follow along on Second Chronicles 33, if you have it. And, let's, and we're literally going to park ourselves. I believe the best way to understand this is literally a verse-by-verse, line-by-line. At some times, it's going to feel intolerable. Walk through... Second Chronicles 33. But this is good medicine. And if it isn't, Stephen will be back next week and you're all, we're cool. <laughs> In Jesus' name. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Thank you, Pastor. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Now, think this through, folks. A 55-year reign, that is the longest reign in the history of any king in Judah. In fact, it is the longest reign of all of the Hebrew kings both of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, of of, of both Israel and Judah, no one reigned longer than Manasseh. Half a century, 55 years. And the first thing, I'm going to be sharing with you many of the same questions I I shared with God as I went through this. Um, I wondered, why would God allow him to reign for so long with him being so evil. I wondered aloud, why? Why does the Lord let evil go on for so long, apparently unchecked? Have you ever wondered in different contexts something similar? Have you asked the Lord the same question? How does a good God, 
for instance, allow a Nazi Germany, a good and powerful God, allow a Nazi Germany, six million Jews, Jews alone, extinguished. How does a good and powerful God allow the killing fields of Cambodia? Or allow a Putin, as we've prayed today, to roll into Ukraine scenes of women and children, entire families killed. This is not a new question. And as you look into scripture, you actually see that there's a pattern here. The book of Exodus begins with the Lord uh, sharing with Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. The cry of my people have come to my ears. But bracket this, and that this was after 400 years of slavery. What took you so long, God? What took you so long? It's no surprise that some of the most compelling passages in Scripture begin with the words, How long, O Lord? Ever pray that? Psalm 13 begins with those words, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The book of Habakkuk. Prophet Habakkuk, actually preaching uh, just a little later than this time, but about the same situation, says, How long, O Lord? Does this sound familiar? Must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, Violence! But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice. Does that sound like last night or this morning watching the BBC or CNN? How, why do you make me and my children look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. This was written 3,000 years before Putin rolled into Ukraine. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Habakkuk announcing this to God, you know, lecturing God in justice. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. That's enshrined in Scripture for a reason. So that we could hear ourselves reflected in the pages of Scripture. Do you? Perhaps you've asked this yourself. Why allow evil to endure? And for so long. At the risk of completely a completely unsatisfactory response to these cosmic questions. I'll offer two possible reasons at the outset of this word. First, God's great grace is sometimes best understood against the backdrop of great evil. I've already alluded to this. 
God's great grace is sometimes best understood against the backdrop of great evil. That grace, and you're wondering where it is, that grace has always been there. Like the flicker of a candle hidden in brilliant sunshine. But hide the sun. Bring on the night. Let the shadows fall. And you'll see the candle that has always been there. Now lighting up a darkened room. Where sin abounds, writes the Apostle Paul in Romans, grace all the more abounds. Of course, God does not delight in sin. But this is the formula, trust me and trust God, this is the formula for the ultimate defeat of sin and the ultimate defeat of evil and the ultimate triumph of beauty and everything holy. Because God's ultimate concern, believe this or not, God's ultimate concern is not our comfort, but our hearts. Now, I want to clarify. He doesn't mind us being comfortable. You know, Psalm 34 promises, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. He doesn't, God doesn't mind us being comfortable. He doesn't mind you watching the Super Bowl on a 70-inch smart TV. He doesn't mind you dropping, driving an SUV. He doesn't mind you playing pickleball with your friends. He doesn't mind this stuff. He doesn't mind you being comfortable. But our hearts matter more than our comfort. Our hearts matter more than our comfort. There are eternal consequences to our hearts that are at play here. And what is God after? He wants to turn you. He wants to turn us into indestructible beings. I think that's his purpose, one of them anyway. Satan cannot destroy love, joy, generosity, patience, forgiveness, and peace. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of grace. The more he tries the more they flourish. You could find it flourishing in Hitler's death camps. You could find them in Ukraine with people loving their neighbors at the cost of their lives. I have found it in some crazy places. In prison. At the ten encampments. Among the homeless and addicted. In a hospice, at deathbeds, at gravesides. 
it emerges from the human spirit in tandem with the Spirit of God. And when it does, Satan loses. Folks, this is what spiritual warfare looks like. And both sides are playing for keeps. There's a second reason. God's almost incomprehensible. I would, I would go so far as to say God's intolerable patience and magnanimity. If the first did not tick you off, this one might. See, once the Lord comes on the stage and brings on his justice, there's no opportunity for grace or repentance. It's game over, and he knows it. And the Lord knows it. Which is why Peter writes in 2 second, in second Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, not wanting anyone fit anyone, fit the most despicable anyone you can imagine, anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why not kill a Saul of Tarsus? This is the first chapters in the book of Acts. Why? This is a, he's on a homicidal rampage to wipe off the face of the earth every Every one of these fledgling Christians, they weren't even calling themselves Christians yet, who believed in the resurrected Christ. He found it, he thought it was his job to find them, hunt them, and kill them. You know how many Christians must have been praying, baying God for this man's blood? And God just, if you could hear God say, why haven't I killed him? Because there's something I see in him that I can use. That Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul, who I've already quoted this morning and will continue to quote throughout this day. And for, you know, did God see something in Manasseh that he thought he could use? And, and folks, frankly, as I was preparing this word and thinking through, frankly, in his eternal purpose, I wouldn't put it past God that today may not be about Manasseh at all. It's not beyond God to permit this story and to permit me to be here to tell this story because he sees your, he sees somebody here, your own struggle with evil and your own need for grace. Your own need for grace. And he loves you. And he loves you. And he wants you to know it. So, how does a man say become a man say? And how in the world can anything good come out of him? Verses 2 and 3. 
Whoops, spill on all four. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the balls and made Asherah poles. So I got to go here. Like I said, this wasn't going to be pretty. Even in 2023, 3,000 years later, I could not put up here a photo, a picture, an illustration of an Asherah pole in mixed company without making you all feeling uncomfortable. Imagine something that looks like a Native American totem pole but made in the shape of a male sexual organ. And they worshiped those. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. More about that in a minute. First of all, the Bible leaves an excellent record of human nature. It's one of the reasons I love studying this book. One of the reasons I love, I love studying the Bible. Uh, and I encourage you to look at the Bible. One perspective of, as you read the Bible, read it as an x-ray, a profile in human nature. There's really nothing new under the sun. Nothing really new that matters. The technology may have changed. Today we have cars and planes and satellites and, and cell phones and the internet. But human hearts have not changed at all. They've not changed. The thoughts and the transactions of the heart from people 3,000 years ago, the stuff they say, the stuff they thought, the stuff they did to each other, what is praiseworthy about them and what is hideous about them are completely recognizable and, and mirror our own. I see myself and I see my neighbors, and I see my world, and I see my heart and our hearts reflected from Genesis to Revelation in these humans. We're still them. This is why I find the story of Manasseh so compelling. What do we see Manasseh doing here in in verses 2 and 3? Manasseh is undoing what his father Hezekiah had done. Throughout, throughout these histories, Kings and, and Chronicles, you'll see kings drawing close to God and bringing Israel and Judah close to God, and then kings drawing away. And Manasseh is, un, is busy undoing what his father Hezekiah had done to honor God and all that Hezekiah had done to draw Judah and Israel closer to God. Now, I was just thinking, what attracted this 12-year-old to worship false gods? What was going through his head? What was going through his little 12-year-old mind? Perhaps at one point, this is one thing that came that I heard from the Lord. 
Perhaps at one point, Manasseh realized that he was hearing about this holy God from a very imperfect vessel. He was hearing about this holy God from a very imperfect vessel. His father. Who I'm also looking forward to meeting in heaven. Now Hezekiah was a fine king. There's some, her- some of the most heroic moments in scripture. He lived through those. He was exemplary in so many ways. But in his latter years, and God gave him some extra years, in his latter years, some of that gold lost its luster. There was some pride. There was some hypocrisy. Could that have mattered? I wonder. Those inconsistencies? To Manasseh? Here's an important announcement. We have only ever heard, you have only ever learned about a holy God from imperfect vessels. You have only ever heard about this holy God from imperfect vessels. I came to Christ through my parents, who I love, who I miss. I look forward to seeing them in heaven. But they were imperfect. At times, hideously imperfect. Mommy, Papi did their best. Growing up, that's what I saw. And I have been discipled by my pastors, several of them. And each of them, some more than others, but all of them have been, drum roll please, don't need to run up here, Giselle. (laughs) Imperfect. Imperfect. Again, Paul writes, and uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, that God deposits his glory in broken vessels. But sometimes we can't see past the broken vessel to see the glory. I'm talking as a he kid. And what we do see seems so alluring. What we do see seems so attractive. It may have seemed spicier, I think, to Manasseh, I'm wondering. Alluring. Here's this, here's this is it, Judah is it, left this speck, smaller than the state of Vermont. And all around Judah, in the big wide world, everyone is going in the other direction. Serving every, every other God except the God of Hezekiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying, whoa. Maybe there's a good reason they're keeping me from this stuff. Do they know that this is where the real power lies? Do they know that this is where the real fun is? And they're keeping this from me? 
some glossary terms. When you read starry hosts, it's an allusion to astrology. Not just astronomy. The Babylonians and Assyrians really were forerunners in astronomy. But it's because they viewed those as gods. You're also going to see soon references to spiritists and mediums and witchcraft. Um, These these were folks who... um, who focused on calling up the spirits of the dead and other spirits. In other words, they, he acknowledged that the spiritual world existed. And folks, we're, we're, it's not all that different from our, the time that we're living in now. You talk to, have you ever heard any of your friends say, well, I, I'm a, I don't consider myself a Christian or, a, or I don't believe in institutional Christianity, meaning you going to church on Sunday. I'm not into that. But I consider myself a spiritual person. I, I, I believe I'm a spiritual person. Well, of course you are. And that's probably being even more dangerous than anything else you can imagine. Because what you're taught, what we're, what they're, what, what, what society seems to be going for, what they're after is, Achieving spiritual power without the nuisance and the obstacle and uh, the inconvenience of an actual God. Without the nuisance and the inconvenience of, of, his, of his expectations and his commandments. We want the power. We just don't want it from him. And at the price of submitting ourselves to him. I'm watching the clock. And I'm watching my heart. And I've come to this place in the sermon. And I knew that I would get here. And up to the moment that I sat here and walked up here, I wondered whether I was going to share this. I know. I feel your pain, sweetheart. If we could trade places right now. Um, But hey, here it is. This happened yesterday. And I, you know, I I, I, I said, you know, Lord, I I don't think these are the folks for this kind of a testimony. But here we go. One of the things that I have the privilege of leading at the Congregation Line of Judah is an outreach to people experiencing homelessness and addiction. Um, It actively happens every Saturday morning, although there are Bible studies and outreach throughout the week. It's a beautiful thing. And we we see a lot of Manasseh's walking into our fellowship hall. Near the end, yesterday, as now with the time ticking, I uh, received, someone called me over and said, Pastor Sam, and called me over to this young lady, let's call her Samantha. And he is, this young man, it's a, you know, we call uh, all sorts of folks to come and and, um, uh, share with this ministry 
So we're not talking, this young man is not a Pentecostal. I am, <laughs> but he isn't. And nor was this young, nor was this lady who really has been in and out of churches. Long story short, shared with me, you know, Samantha, comparte lo que me compartiste, share what you shared with me with Pastor Sam. And she shared with me that when she came over to the United States from Mexico as an 18-year-old, she had grown up in a household where people practiced santeria, where people practiced, you know, spiritual things, both, you know, just a lot of syncretism in many households in Latin America. And she found herself alone in the United States at the age of 18. She said that when she lived in Mexico, she, she, she enjoyed, you know, the attraction of many people, including young men. And she, she, she said, you know, that she was feeling, geez, I, I would like to feel that attraction again, feel attracted, feel like, you know, people like me, especially young men. Somehow she got it through her head to write out a contract with, with the devil. And said that she, she said, I want, to be, I want to be able to have, you know, influence over, over, over people and influence over men. And that, I don't know what, what vein she opened, but she, she, she signed it in blood. Long story short, she says that almost immediately, like that night, she felt something physically inside her, like, die. And then she felt like, you know, in her trajectory, and we're talking about the next 20, 30 years of her life, she heard herself, she did have, she felt that she did have, like, a controlling influence over people, but it was destructive and ruinous, and she couldn't help herself. Now, she'd been coming to our breakfast now. This would have been for three or four weeks. More than that. Maybe a couple months. And yesterday was the first time she felt free to share this with us. A little more about that. A little bit. That is an extreme case of someone wanting access to power or trying to find a way around God uh, you know, is it all that different, really, from the false gods we're losing, losing our own 12-year-olds to? And if you're looking for one, da -da -da, this isn't a ball, this isn't an Asherah pole, but a, um, a whistleblower from Facebook, I don't know if you caught those, those headlines amid all this other stuff, back in October shared how Facebook literally specifically targets youth and children with addictive apps. And they can take them anywhere, to pornography, to weed. You know, we can't, we can't desire more for our kids than Satan does. It's because he does take them seriously. At some point, Manasseh took a first step to do whatever was already brewing in his heart. And what you do, you become. And this became open rebellion. He was no longer to be bound by the God of his fathers. He was going to carve out his own path. And where did that take him? Verse 4, 
through 5. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. All right. This is a complete... So now we're, we're, gonna be, we're, we're witnessing a progression. This is a complete abomination. But I want to focus on those two words, my name. My name. Yes, you now find altars to false gods on the grounds of the very temple of the God of Israel. There were two courts, one for the general people to come, uh, come together and one elevated court for the priest to actually minister before the people. He put these things in both courts. Imagine priests ministering and having one of these things beside him. But the real open defiance is of the name of the Lord. In Jewish tradition, the name of the Lord was so holy that even to this day, Orthodox Jews do not utter his name for fear of saying it in vain. And in Christianity, it go, believe it or not, Christianity goes even further. You may have heard the phrase that there's power in the name of Jesus. That there's power in the name of Jesus. That's more than a pithy religious phrase. And if you want a test of that, is, a good test of that is the controversy and discomfort there is in the world around the name of Jesus. Be careful when you try this at home. Mention any other name or any other biblical or historical figure at work or in polite company and you're fine. Mention Jesus at your job, at the water cooler, in your emails, in reverence, it could get you fired in America. Mention Jesus. It could alienate you, ostracize you from your friends. Listen, Jesus said repeatedly, in my name, you will heal the sick. He said repeatedly, in my name, you will drive out demons. If you were the devil, thinking strategically, if you were the devil and you didn't want those things to happen, people being sick, healed, healed that were sick, or pe- uh, people being delivered, a good way to stop all that is to make sure that no one mentioned or respected that name. Moving on, verse 6. He sacrificed his children in the fire. This is getting worse. In the valley of Ben-Hinnom, he practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Trans- translation, Manasseh literally sacrificed his children, his sons, they had to be his sons, to demons. Ezekiel describes this process. You literally spear the child. The child must be alive. And they roasted this child alive across the fires of this altar. Now, how do you do that? How do you how could you stand there and do that? 
But this is, I think, why God's allowing this. I believe these verses and why we're, I'm putting you through this torture represents a progression. A slow, consuming madness. Where does it begin? It begins in the heart. And worshiping the forbidden. Then he moves those altars to, to false gods in the courts of the house of God. Then things become so corrupt in this society. You have 50 years to do this. That he can sacrifice, kill his children as an offering to these gods. He is the king of this land. The chief executive of this land. He can't do this in hiding. He's doing this in full view of, the, of this society. He could not have done this without the society approving it. Maybe they even applauded it, gosh, as something heroic or progressive. I could actually hear these people saying, gosh, our king loves his people so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own children for us. And what was once inconceivable and unthinkable becomes the laudable, the praiseworthy, the courageous. The evil becomes the good. And the Lord lets it play out. But even now, the worst has, has yet to come. The ultimate provocation has, was yet to come. Verse 7 through 8. He took the image he made and he put it in God's temple of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave this land, warning, that I assign to you and to your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I've commanded them. The ultimate abomination is that Manasseh took this image that he created, and 2 Kings tells us it was an Asherah pole. He put an Asherah pole now inside. If it was in the parking lot, it's now inside the temple. I shudder to think where it was. was it, did he put it in the holy place beside the altar of incense and the showbread? Did he draw the curtain? The veil? Did he put it beside the Ark of the Covenant? Verse 9, but Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Folks, we can become inured to evil. Don't let that happen in your heart. Like, where is God? Can't God answer for this? Don't, and, and Because if it happens in our hearts, the lights go out for the rest of the world. Verse, uh, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. This is a beautiful understatement. God warned Manasseh through his prophets, including the prophet Isaiah. They paid no attention is an incredible understatement. Tradition says that Manasseh had Isaiah shoved in a log 
and sawed in half. Nice. What's, what is left for God to, to do? How long, O oh Lord? How long? Well, verse 11. So the Lord brought against them, finally, the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. They literally dragged him by the nose like an animal and locked him in a hole thousands of miles from home. Finally, justice and humiliation. Because his ultimate sin was pride. God directed the cure at Manasseh's disease, the pride. And it worked. It worked. Verse 12. This is what God was waiting for. While in prison in, in, in Assyria, in his distress, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord. Get this? His God. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So God brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And that's why this scripture is here. Grace. Donde abunda la maldad, sobreabunda la gracia. Where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. He sought the favor of the Lord his God. We may disown the Lord, but the Lord does not disown us. We may deny him, defy him, and do everything we can imagine to, to, to tick him off, but he's still your God. You're still his. Incredibly patient, incredibly merciful, and full of grace. Well, Pastor Sam, you have no idea what I've done. Pastor Sam, you're a visiting pastor. You're going to go back wherever it is you, you live. You have no idea who I am, what I've done. I can tell you that God knows what you've done. And that God knows who you are. And that's why it's called grace. By the way, Sonia and others spoke about pain. More often than not, pain, it takes pain for us to encounter this precious gift of grace. C.S. Lewis called pain the megaphone of God. God resorts to it to rescue us from a madness that will destroy us. That cancer that becomes a grace. If it draws us, if it, if, remember, God is not after your comfort. He's after your heart. That bankruptcy or layoff becomes a grace. That scandal that drags your name through the newspaper or through Facebook or Instagram 
becomes a grace. The God of your fathers, the God of those who went through their own hell and their own drama, now becomes your God. And he'll do what it takes. He loves you so much. Your soul is that important to him. Yes. You are that important to him. Yes. You matter so much to him that he will not get off your case until he's your God. Now a word to FBC. Church. God heard Menesai and was moved. Warning. Be careful what you pray for. Sometimes the thing that angers us the most about God is not his judgment, but his mercy. We would prefer to see God fry a sinvergüenza, a jerk, like Manasseh, and see him burn in hell. We would pay tickets to see this. What do you do with a God who hears the prayers and repentance of a God like him? What do you do with a God who hears the prayers and repentance of an Ahab after killing an innocent man like Naboth and stealing his vineyard? Or, or forgiving a Saul of Tarsus, uh, rep, re, repenting after pursuing and, and killing the early followers of Jesus? What do you do with a God like this? We need to make room here for returning Manasseh's. We need to make room for returning Manasseh's. Mercy, writes James, triumphs over judgment. It may tick you off that God could do that, could forgive, could forgive a guy like that until you're the one being forgiven. Until God extends his grace to you. I'm going to go there and I invite Beth and the team at this moment as we close. A word to Manasseh. By the way, the reason why God has drawn me so closely to Manasseh is because you're, you're looking at you. You have just spent 50 minutes with Manasseh. There are things I look back at 20 years, 25 years. And, the, you know, I have to remember. That the Lord is graceful. And has forgiven me. And I've had to embrace his grace. Some advice. If you're Manasseh, you cannot undo the past to some okay. You can't bring back the children you killed or the people you disappointed. That you can't do. For that, just trust the Lord that He can fix it. And that He can help us live with it. But you're not a slave to your past either. You're not a slave to your past either. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
the way the story ends. Afterward, Manasseh rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gihon Spring, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Awful. He also made it much higher, and he stationed military commanders in all of the fortified cities of Judah. I almost didn't read this verse because, you know, Lord, what does this building project have to do? And we need to, maybe it'll save some time by, and then this morning the Lord reminded me, no, 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 no. Manasseh set up boundaries. Manasseh now set up walls. Don't let just anything. You've come back. Don't let just anything into your family. Don't let just anything into your home. Don't let just anything into your life. Don't let just anything into your mind. Don't let just anything into your heart. Guard your heart. Build up the walls. The crazier the culture gets, the higher your wall should be. And you post a guard there. And then... He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. He threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. History records he had about six years to do this, to try to undo 50 years. But what matters is that you're now living for God. Every day of your life, every moment, every moment you exist, you're radically His. You are proudly His. You are publicly His. You are His. And it's the most important thing about you. And you don't care who knows it. As Bethan is... Can I ask you to bow your heads? Is that alright? I would love an opportunity to pray over you. I don't know that tradition here. I'm not going to make an altar call because I don't want to start a scandal. (laughs) But I am going to do this. If anyone who has heard this word wants prayer for any reason, I invite you to do make this gesture. Just extend your hand towards the altar horizontally in front of you. And just by doing that, you're receiving Grace has to be received, you know that? You have to receive it. You have to open your heart and put the judge aside. Let the Lord be your judge and let the Lord be your advocate. Just receive grace in Jesus' name. Receive his love. Those of you who are asking for forgiveness, this is the place to do it and this is the time. Lord, you saw it. Lord, you heard it. Lord, you read it. You know me. You know it. Forgive me. I receive your grace. 
Silence the voice of the accuser. Silence the voice of my enemy. Silence the voice of the one who pursues me. And I declare to you and to every spirit watching, I am yours forever. In Jesus' name.